Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of The Devil You Know by Wheeling Jen. This band from Yellow Springs is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about them and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Okay, recently we did an episode about John Scott Harrison, son of one president, father to another, and how his body was stolen by grave robbers for sale to a Cincinnati medical school that was in need of cadavers for their anatomy class. Did you like this topic, Steve? Oh, yes. And to be honest, I didn't realize how common grave robbing was back in the 1800s. Seriously, if you were burying someone... You really had to give some thought on how to protect the corpse. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you told me that you ran across some really fascinating stories on this topic when you were researching the Harrison horror. Is that what we're going to do tonight? Yes. Tonight, I've got three really sensational stories of grave robbing that I came across, and I could not wait to share them with you. Can't wait to hear them. First, let me put these stories into a little more perspective and explain to you what was going on back then and why the practice of stealing bodies was so rampant, particularly in Cincinnati. You see, the Queen City was one of the nation's biggest centers for medicine in the 19th century. There were 13 medical schools operating between 1820 and 1880. That meant on any given year, there were thousands of future doctors in town, all in need of anatomy training. And schools competed for them by promising their students real experience with real bodies. Now, in the very, very early years, there was no provision for providing medical schools with corpses. Students had to go raid cemeteries on their own. Can you imagine Welcome to our school. Now go steal a body for class. But necessity is the mother of invention. And this need fueled a black market that raised generations of grave robbers, who were called back then by the nicer name of resurrectionists. And medical schools, they needed the bodies. So they routinely turned a blind eye for how these people practiced their trade. They simply accommodated them. As in the case of the Ohio Medical College that accepted the body of John Scott Harrison, they'd installed an exterior chute behind an alley door for sliding in after-hour deliveries. Other schools secreted their cadavers in hiding places in case there was a raid, like stringing them up inside unused fireplaces or even building secret floors inside domed roofs. It was a risky business. Grave robbing in Ohio was a felony. You not only offended the law, you offended the church. 
and people found it so distasteful, there were actually a number of riots against medical schools in Ohio, including significant ones in 1811, 1845, 1847, and 1852. Not to mention one in the 1830s in Worthington, when a mob angered by body-snatching practices literally ran a Dr. Thomas Morrow out of his high street home and straight out of town, effectively closing his Ohio Reformed Medical College, which once stood on that community's village green. Now, grave robbers had to move quickly to get their quarry. A decomposed corpse was of no use to them. Families would sometimes hire a watchman to guard the grave of a loved one for up to 30 days, after which they were confident nature would have done enough to make the corpse unappealing. So the bodies had to be stolen within a day or two or three of having been interred. Since the grave was freshly dug for burial, resurrectionists could often restore it so the disturbance wasn't immediately obvious. But as the months passed, it became clear which vaults were missing their residence. This is because grave robbers didn't attempt to uncover the entire casket, only the upper half, which they would then break to pull out the body. So in time, as the soil slowly leaked down into the broken and empty coffin, an imprint would appear on the surface of the ground. I found one news article from the 19th century that said, One only need walk through Cincinnati's Wesleyan Cemetery and look at the topography to see who was missing from their forever homes. The practice really began to flourish in the years right after the Civil War. That bloody conflict had shown battlefield surgeons the value of knowing the anatomy. Some states began allowing schools to claim the bodies of paupers and executed criminals, but it just wasn't enough. It would take another couple of decades before legislators expanded the sources for corpses. In Ohio, for instance, in 1881, the state began giving medical schools permission to take the bodies of people who were being buried at public expense. That helped somewhat. And the invention of refrigeration technology allowed corpses to be stored and preserved, so there was less of a premium on the freshly dead. As the 20th century dawned, the day of the resurrectionists was fading. But oh, what a history they left behind. Part 1. William Cunningham. It's rare to know much about a resurrectionist, The identities of most of them are unknown. They did their work under cover of night and disappeared into history without being recognized. Like their names, their victims are, for the most part, a mystery. The exception to this shadowy world is William Cunningham, a grave robber who became legend and earned such a reputation that parents would use his name to threaten misbehaving children. Where a modern-day Freddy Krueger might come to terrorize your nightmares, Old Cunny, as they called him, was the boogeyman who would pull your body from its resting place so it could be cut up into pieces. Except Freddy Krueger was fantasy. 
William Cunningham was real. He was born in Ireland, a large man said to have the muscles of Hercules and an insatiable thirst for hard liquor. He settled in Cincinnati, where he occasionally spent a night in jail on charges of drunk and disorderly or firing his revolver on Central Avenue. He was a delivery man by day, using his old wagon to haul goods. But according to a Cincinnati Enquirer editorial published during his lifetime, people suspected he had something less savory going on on the side, especially after he'd moved into a very fine home and purchased a brand new $400 buggy straight from the manufacturer. That money, as it turned out, came from his night job of digging up corpses. An article in a 1954 Ohio State Medical Journal laid out the colorful details of his career, which started in 1855 and lasted nearly two decades. It was estimated in that time he was averaging two bodies a week. He earned the nickname Old Cunny because it was a play on his name, but also the cunning skills it would take to last so long in a world where his every acquisition was a felony. As his reputation rose, he was also called the ghoul or the old dead man. Medical schools didn't much care who brought them bodies or where they came from. They were desperate. And several of them signed contracts with Cunningham to provide them with cadavers for their dissection tables. He charged them $30 each, the equivalent of about $700 today. But he also paid a price for his chosen career. He limped, thanks to the bullet of an assailant who once chased him from his crime scene. Now, to extract a body from its coffin, Cunningham and usually two assistants would dig a four-foot square hole above the head of the coffin, then break it open. They would secure a rope beneath the corpse's arms and torso and pull it from its resting place. Removing a body was only half the battle. He then needed to get it to the medical school. And so Cunningham frequently dressed the body he'd just dug up in an old hat and coat, then propped the corpse next to him on his buggy seat. If they crossed paths with anyone... Cunningham would speak to his dead passenger as if he were alive, admonishing his companion for drunkenness. A professor who knew Cunningham well said old Cunny's conversation would go something like this. Sit up. This is the last time I am going to take you home when you get drunk. The idea of a man with a family disgracing himself this way. And then he would slap the face of the corpse for dramatic effect. That was usually enough to get a passing rider or pedestrian to look the other way. Not all of Cunningham's customers were in the Cincinnati area. One of his clients was a Dr. Hayden in Leavenworth, Kansas, and his bodies had to be shipped by mail. We know this because once, a postal office in Cincinnati became suspicious about one such package labeled Glass with Care. They opened it found a body inside, and returned it to Cunningham. Here's another story that history preserved. One night, Cunningham and his two assistants stopped at a tavern in Carthage 
before heading to their target in a nearby cemetery. But while there, they were spotted by someone who knew Cunningham and his illegal nocturnal habits. Later, as Cunningham's crew made their way to the cemetery, the observer put together a small posse intent on stopping them. At the cemetery, the posse fired several shots and the two assistants fled, but Cunningham stood his ground. He was arrested, and as the party started for the jail, they passed the same Carthage saloon where a good-natured Cunningham offered to buy a round of drinks for his captors. The offer was accepted, and one round led to another round and another round. Eventually, the posse was feeling pretty mellow and so charmed by Cunningham that they released him after extracting a promise that he would return directly to Cincinnati. Of course, Cunningham agreed. He said goodbye to his new friends, left the tavern, and, confident that the now-drunken posse were headed to their own beds, went straight back to the cemetery. There, his assistants had already returned and finished unearthing two cadavers. Then Cunningham kept his promise. He returned to Cincinnati but with his loot in tow. And then this story, which showed his cleverness, was matched by his determination. Once, Cunningham stole the same two bodies twice. The first time, he and two assistants were in the process of transporting the bodies that already exhumed when they were caught and arrested on Reading Road near Walnut Hills. They were taken to the 9th Street Police Station, and the two bodies were forwarded to a funeral home. The next day, the three thieves were released on bail, and Cunningham went straight to the funeral home and claimed to be from the coroner's office. The bodies were handed over without question. Cunningham had not only retrieved his paycheck, but he had eliminated the evidence of the charges against him. The prosecutor had to drop the case. But old Cunny, he also had a vindictive stripe. He once repaid some medical students who had made him the butt of a joke by supplying them with the cadaver of a smallpox victim. Several students fell ill from that payback. The end for Cunningham came in 1871. On August the 31st that year, he was caught red-handed with two stolen bodies. A news report described the arrest. It said about one in the morning, Cunningham was in his buggy, racing ahead of a small band of men and boys who were hooting, hollering, and shouting for someone to shoot the ghoul. Two police officers came upon the scene and intervened, arresting Cunningham after opening two sacks to find the bodies of a man and an adolescent boy. That wasn't even the worst thing to happen to him that year. In October, local newspapers reported Cunningham was admitted to Cincinnati Hospital, and there he told reporters stories of his imminent demise were exaggerated and that he had simply been the victim of too much poor whiskey. He said he planned to be back in business in a few short days. But he wasn't. He died on November the 2nd of heart disease. His age was estimated to be 64 years old. Upon his death, per prior arrangement, Cunningham's widow sold his body for $5 
to the Medical College of Ohio. The school displayed his skeleton afterwards for years. A story in the Cincinnati Enquirer from 1872 described the site. His ghastly skeleton, neatly articulated and wired, sits on a tombstone in the cabinet of that institution, while in his hand he grasps a spade, the emblem of his calling in life. Between his teeth he holds a short pipe, as he was wont to in the days of flesh. Well, at least as of 1954, his skeleton was still being kept by the University of Cincinnati's College of Medicine Department of Anatomy. But a 2015 story by Cincinnati Magazine said the skeleton no longer existed in their inventory. By the way, Cunningham's wife, Mary, apparently attempted to carry on the family business. One contemporary news report described her as Irish-born, bony, and brawny-jawed with the mouth of an alligator. In 1878, seven years after Cunningham's death, she was arrested with four others for snatching the body of a child and selling it to Ohio's Miami Medical College. Part 2, The Grave Torpedo With grave robbing so rampant in Ohio, perhaps it was inevitable that the Buckeye State would also be a leader in trying to solve the problem. Two different Ohioans patented devices that would cause death or, at the very least, severe bodily injury to anyone trying to dig up a grave. Philip Clover was the first. He spent his childhood on a farm in Columbus, but grew into an artist and an inventor. And he put that creative mind to work trying to stop the resurrectionists with an invention he called the coffin torpedo. He received a patent for the idea in 1878. His invention worked like a shotgun. The device was rigged inside the coffin. There would be a tripwire rigged across the corpse's chest, and it would trigger a small barrel filled with bullets and tucked either between the head and neck or into the armpit and aimed upward. In theory, at least, whoever removed the lid of the coffin would be greeted by a blast of lead balls. The second invention was patented a few years later in 1881. Thomas Howell of Circleville in Pickaway County called his idea the grave torpedo. Howell was a watchmaker and a former probate judge, and his idea worked more like a landmine. It featured a charge of black powder ignited by a percussion cap. It was placed on top of the coffin, and if the metal plate was disturbed, it would simply explode. Howell advertised his invention in the newspapers. One such ad in 1879 said, Sleep well, sweet angel. Let no fears of ghouls disturb thy rest, for above thy shrouded form lies a torpedo, ready to make minced meat of anyone who attempts to convey you to the pickling vat. Now, the same year Howell patented his grave torpedo, Ohio newspapers reported the first and possibly only death of a grave robber by a booby trap. 
It was the night of January 17, 1881. Three men had driven their sleigh that winter night to a cemetery near Gann, a village in Knox County. Two men hopped out with picks while the third stayed in the sleigh as a lookout. As the men set about their work, one of their picks came into contact with an explosive and boom! One man, only identified by the name Dipper, was killed. The man digging with him was injured, his leg broken and mangled. According to newspaper reports, the getaway driver helped the injured man into the sleigh and they tore off, evading pursuit. Historians don't think the Knox County bomb was the work of a Thomas Howell or a Philip Clover device, that it was more likely a booby trap set by the family of the deceased. As a matter of fact, it remains a mystery as to whether Clover or Howell's invention was ever used. Historians say they have never found evidence of one being installed, and that there were cemeteries that even outlawed them, saying they were just too dangerous and a risk to innocent people passing over a grave. Besides, it was easier to just set someone to watch a loved one's grave for a few days, giving time for the body to decay past usefulness. Thomas Howell's invention, however, did receive national recognition, even if it wasn't all positive. I came across a Montana newspaper in 1882 making fun of the device. They had a column called Why We Laugh, and one item joked that Ohio's grave torpedo was tested on a mule, which, at the point of explosion, picked up a single hoof and continued grazing. Still, even if the devices were rarely used, one wonders if the threat of them had done a job. There were news articles where people warned that their family tombs had been set with grave torpedoes. And maybe that was enough to keep away the ghouls. Besides, the year Howell was issued his patent, 1881, was the same year Ohio enacted the anatomy law, which allowed medical schools to legally claim bodies from public institutions who were burying people at public expense. So the device's days were numbered. Chapter 3, The Avondale Horror In the dark and sad world of grave robbing, a new term emerged in 1828, burking. It means to murder a person for the purpose of selling the corpse, and it came from the Scottish murder team of William Burke and William Hare, who killed 16 people in a 10-month period simply to make money from the sale of their bodies. As a matter of fact, their story inspired Robert Louis Stevenson to write his short story, The Body Snatcher, which one day will lead to the 1945 film featuring Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. It's a horrifying concept, but an idea that was not unique to Scotland. And since medical schools in Ohio and elsewhere were not overly inquisitive about the bodies that came their way, it will forever remain a mystery as to how many cadavers ended up on their dissection tables hours after having been smothered or strangled or bludgeoned. But we do know there were at least three of them, a family from Avondale.
Avondale is now a neighborhood in Cincinnati, home to the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden and the historic Avon Field Golf Course. But back in 1884, right where the golf course is on Reading Road, there was a dairy enterprise called Blackley Farm. That year, about 10 p.m. the evening of February 15, an orange glow on the property caught the attention of Lewis Mills, who ran the farm for the Blackley family. Mills recognized it as fire, and he followed it to a tiny log cabin on the farm that he rented to a man named Beverly Taylor, his wife Elizabeth, and Emma Jean Lambert, their 11-year-old granddaughter who lived with them. The shanty was engulfed, and there was no sign of the Taylors outside the building. Mr. Taylor had severe rheumatism and hadn't even left the cabin for the past six months, so Mills presumed the family might still be inside. All he could do was wait for the fire to finish and look for the remains. A few years ago, Belt Magazine did a story on the Taylors and brought them back to life. Mr. Taylor had been born a slave in Virginia and sold to a plantation in Mississippi when he was a boy. After the Civil War freed him, he made his way to Cincinnati with his family and they settled on Prospect Hill, just north of downtown. Mr. Taylor made his living as a carpenter and was even able to save some money, but in the mid-1870s, he was robbed. That's when they took up residence on Blackley Farm. He did what he could on the farm until his rheumatism left him bedridden. His wife, Elizabeth, still brought in some money doing laundry for the neighbors. It wasn't clear how Emma Jean ended up with them, but it wasn't and still isn't unusual for life circumstances to leave grandparents raising their children's children. After the fire consumed the cabin, Mills picked through what remained but couldn't find any trace of the three people who had lived there. He called Avondale Marshal Joseph Brown, who put together a search party to look for them in the surrounding woods. They weren't found, and the weekend passed with no word from them. On Monday, an Avondale officer led four hired men on a second search of the property. One man in this hired crew was a local laborer named Alan Ingalls, who seemed shifty but diligent, examining every object in his path to the point of annoying others. But nothing of value turned up. Officers also interviewed everyone who lived in the area, but nobody had seen either Beverly or Elizabeth in days. The only sighting had been of young Emma, who had gone to a local saloon the previous evening to buy 10 cents worth of whiskey for her grandpa to soothe his painful rheumatism. On Wednesday, Avondale Marshal Joseph Brown decided to make the rounds of local medical colleges. In Cincinnati, it was common enough for missing bodies to turn up there. And at the Ohio Medical College on 6th Street, the chief anatomist, Dr. Jonathan Longfellow Silly, promised Brown he'd be on the lookout for three bodies matching the description of the Taylors. And sure enough, the bodies turned up. Actually, they were already at the school, though the good doctor said he didn't realize it till after Brown left. So he went in search of Brown, 
brought him back to the school, and Brown immediately recognized Beverly, Elizabeth, and Emma Jean as they lay in the dissecting room. Their deaths were ruled homicide. They had been beaten to death. Dr. Silly said, This is the first case of the kind that I ever knew of, and I could never have supposed any person would kill a fellow being simply for the money the body would bring for dissecting purposes. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Well, the men who brought bodies to the school usually used fake names. The names of the two men who brought the Taylor family in were called Jack and Harrison. Some presumed the guy using the name Harrison did it as an homage to the John Scott Harrison case a few years earlier. Dr. Silly said he was on the fifth floor dissecting room about 11 p.m. the previous Friday when Jack and Harrison brought the three bodies in saying they had been killed in a train accident. The three bodies were naked and in bags. Dr. Seeley offered $15 apiece for them, but only had $20 available. He promised to pay Jack and Harrison the balance later. Marshall Brown asked for descriptions of this Jack and Harrison. He didn't recognize Harrison by the description Dr. Seeley gave him, but when he described Jack as being short, stout, a black man with distinctive Popeyes and maybe about 38 years old. Well, that sounded a lot like Alan Ingalls, that annoying guy who had been on his search crew a couple of days earlier. Well, Marshall Brown went straight to Ingalls' home in Avondale and arrested him. For good measure, Brown also took in Jeff Lout, who was a cousin of Ingalls' wife, and two other men who lived at the Allen Ingalls residence, Ingalls' brother, Richard, and another relative, Ben Johnson. All four men denied having anything to do with the Taylor murders or the selling of the corpses to the medical college. Allen Ingalls, who obviously could be identified by the school staff, needed a bit more of an excuse, however. So he said... He had been approached by a man from Kentucky who called himself John Harris, who hired him to carry the bodies to the medical college for him. Well, Jeff Lout was eventually released. He had an airtight alibi. And even though Richard Ingalls' only alibi was that he'd retired early the night of the fire and didn't hear his brother Alan come back in that night, interest in him as a suspect faded. But Ben Johnson who lived with the Ingalls, he couldn't hide his face. The medical school staff identified him as the one who was called Harrison, who had come in with Alan Ingalls to sell the bodies. The nail in this coffin came from a man named Robert Dixon, a wagon driver contracted by the school to pick up and transport bodies. Dixon told detectives about the night in question. He said Alan Ingalls came to his house 
that afternoon bearing a note from Dr. Silly to arrange a pickup of three bodies that he had in his possession. Ingalls and the driver agreed to meet at nine o'clock at the last lamppost on the Avondale Road. It was very dark, the driver Dixon recalled. Ingalls and Ben Johnson climbed the fence and brought over the three bodies in sacks, which they placed in the wagon. Ingalls walked ahead on the return, and I drove after him with Johnson sitting with me. The road was so bad and the hill so steep that Johnson got out and he and Ingalls pushed the wagon a piece. On reaching the road, Johnson got in beside me and Ingalls sat on one of the bodies and lit his pipe. Ingalls told me to drive to the college and I did so, and we left the bodies there. Well, when asked about this, Ben Johnson told detectives that Okay, yeah, he helped Ingalls sometimes in the transportation of bodies and had only done so three times before. And he swore he only came into contact with the bodies after they were dead. He said, Jack gets the bodies from the cemeteries by paying the sextons two or three dollars apiece. Well, their excuses were not going to cut it. A day later, both men were formally charged with murder. Hamilton County Prosecutor Pugh called it the most horrible crime ever committed in this state. In a trembling voice, Ben Johnson pleaded guilty. Alan Ingalls pleaded not guilty. For a while, Alan Ingalls stuck to his story about the Kentucky man paying him to deliver those bodies, but then he started trying to pin the whole job on his partner. He said Ben Johnson had approached him Friday morning, saying he had three more bodies to sell to the school. Alan Ingalls asked, who were they? And Ben Johnson said, why, those old folks living out there on the hill. They're no good. Let's go tonight and knock them on the head and haul them in. Well, that morning, Ingalls and Johnson went and paid Beverly Taylor a friendly visit. They chatted cheerily and the two men left, promising to return with some whiskey. Then, Ingalls headed straight over to the Ohio Medical College, where he told Dr. Seeley he had three fresh cadavers and got a note from Seeley to give to the wagon driver. This means the transportation was set up before the tailors were even dead. Ingalls gave detectives this description of the killing that night. Johnson had a locust club, a little longer than a policeman's club. The door was not locked, and we bolted right in. The old man was sitting at one side of the fireplace, and the woman was sitting in front of the fire, smoking a pipe, and the little girl was working about the room. As soon as we got in, Johnson stumbled, and the club fell onto the floor. He picked it up quickly and turned to the old woman. He struck her, and she said, Oh God, oh God, and he hit her again. Her pipe fell in her lap. The old man saw it and cried, What have you done? He turned and hit the old man, and he stiffened, and then he turned to the little girl. She was looking at him and could not say a word. He began knocking them all on the head, striking right and left, just as though they were a lot of cattle. He hit the old woman first. She made a good deal of fuss and struggled. 
I grabbed her by the throat and choked her to death. The others didn't give us much trouble. About one blow settled the little girl. Ingle said they didn't set the fire that consumed the cabin and assumed the fireplace had simply sparked and done the job. Then Alan Ingle sort of suggested karma may have been at work. He said the old man, Beverly Taylor, was the one who gave him the idea of becoming a resurrectionist in the first place, that he had robbed graves himself and even gave Ingalls pointers on how to do it. Ben Johnson, meanwhile, continued to maintain his innocence of this whole affair. In the end, both men were found equally guilty and sentenced to death. Alan Ingalls did the job himself. On April the 30th, 1884, he was found suspended by a piece of blanket tied to the grating of a window in his jail cell. Ben Johnson met his maker on September 12th. He wore a new black suit in which he'd been baptized into the Methodist Episcopal Church the night before by the Reverend I.W. Joyce. Witnesses said he spent the night crying and repeating that Jesus had saved him. In the morning, he had a last meal of fried chicken, then was led to a gallows that had been erected in the courtyard. More than 500 people were waiting to see it. He was allowed a final statement. Friends, he said to the crowd, I don't know that I have many friends here, but I hope we all will meet as friends before God. I feel that God has forgiven my sins. I want to say to you that I am innocent of the crime charged, but I must suffer. I say I did not commit the crime which is laid against me. Then Johnson was led to the trap door. His knees and ankles were bound. The noose was arranged around his neck, and the trap door opened. Eleven minutes later, Johnson was pronounced dead. There's a bizarre epilogue to this execution. Someone in the crowd clambered up the scaffold, pulled a pocket knife, and tried slicing at the rope. When he was shoved away, he begged for a piece of the rope. The deputy declined, but then Sheriff Hawkins appeared, stepped forward, and instructed that the body be removed and that the rope used to hang him cut up and passed out as souvenirs. Men began to climb over each other to get a piece of the rope, so the deputy began tossing segments into the crowd while the men fought each other over them. By the way, if you're wondering, Ben Johnson did not make it to the dissecting table. He had already made arrangements for his body to be taken to Indiana and buried near his mother, a woman he hadn't seen since he was three years old. I have no idea what happened to Ingalls' body. I owe a lot of details in this story to that Belt Magazine story and the writer, Richard O. Jones. His story is way, way more detailed than our account. So if this story has interested you, go look for it online and you can learn even more. That's it for tonight, listeners, for photos, news, clippings, and more. On this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. 
Wheeling Gin is a duo. Jacob Thompson on guitar and vocals and Jeremy Bennett on drums and percussion. And these two blues rock musicians call Yellow Springs home. Tonight, we're featuring their song, The Devil You Know. Jacob said it's a song about the disillusionment one begins to feel with the systems of power and belief when sort of finding their place in the world during early adulthood. Things can feel almost like a horror movie at times, and the haunted blue sound of the music is an expression of that feeling. Wheeling Gin has two more singles slated to be released this summer, so hopefully we'll have them back on again real soon. In the meantime, follow them on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube to stay updated by looking for Wheeling Gin. Gin, by the way, is spelled J-J-I-N. Might help you to know that. Well, let's have another listen to The Devil You Know by Wheeling Gin. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
On a hot summer night in 1988, Jane Borowski was stabbed 27 times by an unknown man. She was seven months pregnant. My name is Jane Borowski. I survived, and I remember everything. Jane is the lone survivor of a serial killer. I'm your host, Jennifer Amell, and this is Dark Valley. Join us in our search for America's unknown serial killer. Subscribe to Dark Valley, out now.